0: Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. Get your free trial set, including a razor handle, five-blade cartridge, and shave gel. Just go to harrys.com. <laughs> Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our identity protection friends at MyID Care. The massive data breach which occurred this past September puts you at risk. Join more than 25 million Americans who rely on My ID Care for identity protection. Get started today by visiting MyIDCare.com fool and save 15%. This is Motley Fool Answers. I'm Alison Southwick and I'm joined, as always, by Robert Brokamp, personal finance expert and clean-shaven man here at The Motley Fool. (laughs) Oh, yeah! And I also have Jason Moser, but more on that later. As promised, we're back with five more reasons to break up with an investment, and this time, it's not on you. We'll also answer your question about buying versus renting a house, and we'll learn three money lessons from Elizabeth Taylor. All that and more on this week's episode of Motley Fool Answers. All right, it's time for answers, answers. And before we get into the question, I should remind everyone that Jason Moser is joining us in studio today. Hey, hey. So you're going to have some thoughts on this answers answers, right?
1: I've got thoughts on all sorts of things, Allison, but yeah, I mean, I I, I can offer some thoughts on on these things too.
0: So the the good news for Matai is that he's getting twice the advice That's true. for the same low low price. Exactly. Of free.
1: More value, so... value add in the investing world. That's what we call a margin booster right there. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Incremental. Well,
0: you get what you pay for, Matai. So here we go. He writes, My taxable portfolio is up around 100%, which I am thankful for. But now I have a dilemma. My wife and I are considering moving to Dallas. We are homeowners here in Colorado and would like to keep our house in rent, which means that I would need to sell the stocks in the taxable portfolio to buy a home in Dallas. But I'm not sure if or when we are moving. I would need to find a job. So, should I keep the stocks or sell them?
2: Well, I'll give my thoughts on it, and then we'll see what Jason says. First of all, I would say do not sell the stocks, because it sounds like there's a good bit of uncertainty about what you're going to do. And even if you decide to move to Dallas, I would actually recommend that you rent for a while. You don't know if you're going to like Dallas, or maybe you're familiar with Dallas, but generally when you move to a new city, (laughs) I think
0: like it's just I, I take it you're not a fan of Dallas cuz no, no, i've that never, what you're I've never of been there like seriously no i've never don't lock that down <laughs> it's a very
2: big <laughs> place i've never been to Dallas what i'm saying is hey if you if you're moving to a new city with a new job you don't want to buy rent for a while you may not like the job you may not like the city plus if you live there for a year you'll see the na- you'll get a taste of the neighborhoods yeah. the schools you'll get a better idea of where you want to live even if you want to stay then i would buy so that's my take on it, Jason. I'm interested in your take, not only because you're a smart guy, but because you're someone who
1: kept a house in another state as a rental. I did, but more on that later, bro. Um, it, it's interesting your your take on renting first. And I I think in in theory I agree with you. Now I will I will offer the caveat that when when we moved up here in 2010, when I accepted the job here, uh, when we moved up, we. We're looking for a house to buy immediately. We didn't want to rent because we didn't want to have to move twice, basically. Yeah. Uh, and so there were some stocks that I actually had to sell to help with the down payment because the cost of living up here is, is significantly more. Now we had a home in Georgia and we decided to keep that and rent it out because we didn't need to sell it. We had some equity in the home and we thought, well, let's give renting it out a, a shot and see how that goes. And if it if it works out okay, then then fine. And we had someone uh, in in the area who sort of helped keep eyes on. That house for us and we ended up renting it out for about seven years. Oh wow. Uh, and and then we recently moved at the beginning of this year, so we sold that house and sold our, our other house up here to combine everything into the one house that we bought here. But I going back to the original point that you made in the uncertainty that seems to be uh prevalent here, I, I, I agree. I think with that level of uncertainty, I wouldn't do anything so um, permanent as selling all of those stocks because it doesn't sound like they are fully Committed yet on what they want to do. And I think that's the beauty of renting and why I ultimately would agree with that is because renting gives you plenty of options. And if you're unsure of moving there and then you decide to do it, who knows if you're really going to like it. Maybe the job isn't what you thought it would be, but renting gives you those options, whereas buying doesn't. And selling those stocks, especially if you're 100% up, there's going to be some capital gains to uh, pay there. You'd probably be able to offset that a little bit with some of the closing costs from buying a house, but I don't. I don't think that typically works out ultimately uh, in your favor, anyway. So I, I think, yeah, un- until you have some real conviction there, leave yourself as many choices as possible.
2: Did you have any uncertainty about whether you would like your job at the Fool?
1: I really didn't. You know, I mean, it, it was honestly. Was because, it due to the Fool buddy <laughs> program? It was, and you know, you where his he's buddy? leading. I, yeah, I, exactly. I, I he was okay. my but, Fool buddy, which I didn't know that coming up here, but. It was so funny when he came up to my desk. He's like, "Uh, Hi, you must be Jason. I'm, and I'm like, You're a bro.
0: I knew who he was because I was a member
1: before I came to work here. I knew I would love it. And so um, for me, it really was. I I was really hoping to get the job up here. So I kind of had a good feeling I would like it and want to stay. And plus, my wife already works up here anyway. So it just all worked out. That's true.
0: Thanks to Harry's for supporting Motley Fool Answers. By taking less profit and selling directly to you over the internet, Harry's offers their blades at half the price, just $2 a blade compared to the $4 or more you'll pay at the drugstore. Not only are they reasonably priced, they provide a great shave. Isn't that right, Jason Moser?
1: You know, I only wish that these listeners could actually see, you know, and perhaps and even, it. you perhaps know, on the back it. of your hand. Down the green of Bro, my go cheek. ahead.
0: Go ahead. It is, He's your it buddy. Is. It's go, fine. Does it
1: have to be by my hand? Freshly shaved this morning with a Harry's razor. That's, that's and nice. And I'll tell you, that's I, really I nice. got that Harry's subscription <laughs> After listening to Chris Hill read that off a of market foolery oh, one Chris day in taping, loves so Harrys. Yeah, yeah. Tell you what, he's a big advocate. I don't shave every day, but that's the beauty of, of Harrys. Is they say how often do you shave, and then they will cater the program to that. Mm-hmm. So they send you how many razors and the gel and all that stuff, sort of based on how often you do shave, and uh, it's very convenient.
0: That's how you do a ringing endorsement, bro. That's how you do
1: it. <laughs> hey, once you go Harrys, you'll never go back.
0: Harry's is so confident you'll love their blades they're giving you a free trial set for free. You just have to cover $3 for shipping. To get your free trial set including a razor handle, 5-blade cartridge and shave gel, go to harrys.com/fool. That's harrys.com/fool. We're back with five more reasons to break up with your investment. Last time, this was like, I don't know, two, three weeks ago. I'll bet listeners forgot (laughs) that we promised we were going to be back with five more reasons. But we're back. We remembered. Because the last time we talked about it, we gave you five reasons to break up with a stock where it's not necessarily the stock's fault, right? Like, for example... You need the money in the
2: next few years, so you shouldn't have that money in the stock market. or maybe. Uh, A single stock has become a too big of a position in your portfolio, so you're selling it just to keep a little more balance in your portfolio.
0: There you go. So this week we brought Jason Moser in to help us when you need to break up with a stock because really, it's the stock and not you.
1: And that happens very often.
0: It does. And so we've got five breakup lines that you can use to break up with your stocks, and which are good reasons or mutual fund. Uh, And so shall we just get into it? Let's rock. All right. The first breakup line is. You keep forgetting my birthday, and our anniversary, and my name.
1: And here we're talking about management missteps. Oh, and there are just so many shining, shining examples out there of this. And it's easy to be a critic because there are so many uh, bad situations out there. And it always does. We have all sorts of, of Criticisms that we offer management. We also have to recognize the fact it's not an easy job running a public company. Now, with that said, um, a couple of of really uh, easy sort of recent examples here. Uh, now that we're just getting out of earnings season, are Under Armour and also Chipotle Mexican Grill. These are two uh, companies that are very popular recommendations in the Foolish Universe and my service that I work on, Million Dollar Portfolio. Uh, many people probably know that is a real money portfolio that we manage for our members. So we're making real time. Buys and sells. And uh, right now, we actually have Under Armour and Chipotle on hold because Mm -hmm. of a plethora of management missteps that have have, uh, sort of taken place over the past year, really. And I mean, we can use Under Armour just as an example because I think it's so easy to sort of point towards uh, the company that had so much success so quickly. And it seemed like quarter in and quarter out, they could do no wrong. And it was just the stuff was flying off the shelves. And so they didn't really have to do much. And so I think uh, CEO Kevin Plank sort of took that maybe a little bit for granted, probably was a little bit cocky. They made some, I think, poor investments. There was some reckless spending going on. I think they spent a lot of money. Well, the connected fitness stuff, I think, is the easiest example. They blew somewhere in the neighborhood of $400 million on some connected fitness apps in the name of. More data, which would then allow them to build more equipment and apparel that their customers want. And, and that's just not playing out uh, as well as I think they thought it would. And it took their balance sheet from a position of strength where they didn't really have any debt uh, to a position of weakness where they now have about $800 million in net debt. Uh, so there have been some management missteps that have played out on the stock. Any of you listeners out there who own Under Armour shares, I feel your pain because I own those <laughs> shares too. And we still own them in million dollar portfolio, but they are on hold. Uh, and it is Something I got a lot of questions after this quarter. And I really want to sell these shares. What do you recommend? And I just thought, well, everybody's situation is unique. Make sure you take 24 hours to step back, try to remove the emotions from the situation. Understand do you need to sell? Do you want to sell? They're two very different things. Um, we're hopeful that they'll turn it around. It has been a successful company to date, but definitely some management missteps that have played out on the stock. Yeah.
2: When it, whenever you look at a company, you're going to find an example of a mistake or two, Sure. Right? I mean a classic example is like Amazon and its phone, its attempt to make the phone, right?
0: Ooh, Nothing. Netflix and Quickster! Netflix exactly. and Quickster, That's, That's another classic. good one. exactly. Yeah. And
2: and that every company should be trying new things, experimenting, and just by their nature they're going to f- some of the many of those are going to fail. So how do you know when you have a series of things that are really not just nice little bets that didn't work out but is a real sign that management is losing its touch.
1: Yeah, I think that's a very good question. I think we'll use the Amazon um, example here to to where we knew that really the Fire Phone was most likely not going to gain any traction. Uh, it's also very much in line with Jeff Bezos's culture there at Amazon to try lots of things, because even though the Fire Phone may not succeed, some of the technology or ideas that go into it could help the business in other ways down the road. Particularly as they're developing home assistance with Alexa and whatnot, uh, so that was very much in line with kind of the, their their mo more or less. I think with Under Armour. Uh, you know they they were going through I think and doing a lot of things that weren't quite in line uh, with what had led them to be so successful in the first place and I think uh, I'm glad you mentioned Netflix because we, I I sort of made the observation that maybe this is Kevin Plank's. Reed Hastings moment in a good way. Maybe this is sort of the humbling event that forces him to step back, take a look, realize that he needs to get some diverse opinions on an executive team there to help him move that business forward. So I think if it's something that's in line with sort of the company culture, that's one thing. If it's something that kind of makes you scratch your head and think, hmm, that just doesn't really seem like it makes a whole heck of a lot of sense. That's when you kind of put it under the microscope. And for us in Million Dollar Portfolio, we've laid out uh, a few things that we're going to be paying attention to here in, in the next year to sort of assess whether they are taking that step back and reassessing and sort of getting the business going back in the right direction.
2: One of the lines we often use around here is Warren Buffett's favorite holding period is forever. Yeah. Uh, and ironically, that was made in reference to uh, a couple of companies, one of them was Freddie Mac. Which they ended up selling, I don't know, he sold it within a decade or so. And one of the reasons was along the lines of what you said, he saw them doing things that were outside of their circle of competence. Yeah. Wasn't within their business lines. He's like, Okay There's there's too much going on here. I'm going to sell these shares.
1: Yeah, and I'm holding forever is kind of romantic, and and it's great if you can sort of find that situation. I think we're in a a situation today. The way that information travels today versus when Warren Buffett was really uh, sort of coming up in the investing world, it's a far different world. I mean, information is not difficult to come by. It used to be very difficult to come by, and so there was a big reward for going down in that library, at the S and P, and sticking your nose in the books. Uh, so, I don't know that it's wise to adopt that. Well, we just want to own forever because I think that uh, we need to do a better job of educating people on when and how to sell.
0: Which is the whole point of this show.
1: Hey, wait, uh, <laughs> what? I see what you did there. I
0: didn't do anything. Um, do we want to talk about uh, how queso is not saving Chipotle? <laughs> <clears throat> uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I haven't tried the queso, but I hear it's awful.
1: I've tried it. I mean, I like. I'm not a queso expert. Like, it's just you know, eh, it's fine. It's queso. It's it's not bad. Like, I I get it again. I mean, I, I guess maybe people have higher expectations than I do. I'm not a queso expert. Like, I, I would rather have that than queso you get at Taco Bell. But like, I, I don't go to Taco Bell either. So I don't know. I guess everybody's just got an opinion. <laughs>
0: Whatever. Just shut up and eat your
1: queso, yeah, well, people. Queso's definitely not going to say what they got. What they got to work on.
0: What do you think they've got to work
1: on? Well, I don't know that. Aside from
0: not poisoning people, I think they've got that probably (laughs) under control now.
1: You know, it's one thing for them to self-assess and say that half of their store base doesn't meet their internal standards. They feel like that they are not uh, to the level of cleanliness, or the service isn't to the level that they expect. So, at least if you can self-diagnose, that's fine. Now, what you have to do is then fix it. And to this point, it doesn't seem like they've really fixed it. But I would also argue that. From an investor's perspective, Chipotle is never going to garner the the multiple, the premium valuation that it used to, because it's, oh, it's not, a bunch
0: of heart. I just well, heard a lot of hearts break. It's not a lot of our <laughs> listeners were just like, wait, what?
1: It's not ten years ago. There are far many, uh, far far more imitators out there. Like Chipotle, oh, ten years ago was very trucks, unique, right? right? And now it's not. Right, and you have all sorts of different choices, and so I mean, a good example by our house there is a Chipotle, and it used to be really kind of the only concept there. But now there's a Five Guys, there's a Chick fil A, and there's a Cava, all right there in the same area, and a
2: Ca- Cafe Rio. And oh, man. so
1: there you go. There are just so many choices out there. <laughs>
0: Cafe Rio, if you're interested, we will take your advertising dollars oh, man, because Bro good. has thoughts on that.
1: Clearly affects their traffic, yeah. and, and for a restaurant, traffic is. That's the pot of gold gold at the end of the rainbow, right? I mean, you're you're looking to figure out any which way you can to boost that traffic. So they're going to be able to open more stores, but I don't think they're ever going to be a stock that trades for 50 times earnings ever again.
0: Yeah, none of the other concepts ever took off either.
1: No, 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 no. Yeah, which was funny because Shop House I thought was really good. Like it was very tasty. Yeah. Um, I guess it just didn't resonate with uh, consumers' fickle demands. And Pizzeria Locale, I don't even know what the deal is there. Like they've got three or four of them. But man, it's pizza! Like you can just open those things in mass, right? Right. Everybody likes pizza, even bad pizza. It's still pizza, (laughs)
0: right? Sure. All right. Next, next breakup line. Are we ready? We're ready. I don't like who you're becoming.
2: (laughs) And here we are talking about sell when CEO succession concerns you.
1: Well, CEO succession is something that should concern everyone. Uh, The shining example here is Walt Disney. Uh, Disney is a very popular investment again in our foolish universe. It's one that we own a million dollar portfolio. Uh, Bob Iger is the CEO currently and has witnessed just tremendous success. And he's been really uh, the the uh, the inspiration behind those three acquisitions that have really done so well for them in Pixar and Marvel and Lucasfilm. So the question is, uh, when is he going to leave and who's going to take his place? Because he should have been gone. Like a couple of years ago. but Because he wanted to, or because people wanted him out? No, he's yeah. been just saying, it's time, and I'm going to retire, and yeah. then he would postpone it again and again and again, um, because I don't think they have quite found uh, who they feel comfortable with taking his place. and Whoever does take his place is going to have some serious shoes to fill. Um, a lot of a lot of uh, ideas out there. Cheryl Sandberg is possibly someone who could jump in there. I mean, she has uh, plenty of great experience at Facebook and it would be, I think, a job she'd probably do pretty well. But who knows at this point he's gonna be around for a little while longer. and um, it's gonna be a big question mark as to who fills his shoes because they're gonna have a lot uh, just a, a tremendous act to follow, hey, especially with all the trouble that ESPN's having. Mm, Right,
0: and when so sometimes um, companies will announce, okay, so and so stepping down. Here's who's coming in, and the stock will fall or maybe rise, depending on who the person is. Mm -hmm. So, what are usually some of the keys to good succession? Well, I think in a
1: lot of cases, it's kind of it's kind of okay to see a COO take the place of the CEO. Uh, The COO typically knows the business pretty intimately and has seen a lot of what's going on at that CEO level. But that doesn't always work out, and I think McDonald's is a good example here, where Don Thompson, who was the former CEO, jumped in to fill the role once their CEO retired, and I think he lasted for about a year. Mm. He just didn't perform, wasn't able to do what the company needed him to do, so he was quickly ousted, and Steve Easterbrook, who was brought in. It's just made a world of difference. I mean, at McDonald's has really, really performed well. I mean, the stock is up seventy-five percent or so since he took the CEO reins a couple of years ago. Uh, and, and so, it's it's a good good sort of example there, where you don't always quite nail it from the start, but uh, sometimes you got to go through a couple to make sure you get the right fit.
0: Do you think internal is usually more successful than an external succession?
1: I don't have any actual statistics to back oh, up. my Oh, let's feeling not there. let that get in <laughs> the way. Let's not let's I not rely on, on reality. Um, I think that internal very often, uh, while it seems good on paper, I think that typically internal can also be problematic because they've been there for a while, um, and the company has been uh, operating sort of under those same sorts of guidelines. Even even though that internal uh, future CEO was there in a in a lower position, so. It, it's it depends really on the state of the business before that person takes over, and Craig Jelinek, who took over for Jim Senegal at Costco, I think he had a pretty good situation, right? I mean, he basically just kind of had to jump in behind the wheel and just keep steering the car down the road. Um, Costco's got some problems that are that are market related, not really so so much related to them. It's uh, more of more of how Amazon's kind of changing the space, but I think a lot of that just depends on how the company's doing uh, when the CEO is is being replaced.
0: And our next breakup line is, you're not growing as a human being, or I guess as a company, whatever. You see what we're trying to do here.
2: (laughs) And this is sell if a platform shift threatens an investment.
1: And technology, I think, is the poster child for this, right? I mean, platform shifts are just the name of the game there. Um, You mentioned a good one before, Allison, I think, where BlackBerry sort of. Had its lunch eaten by Apple, yeah. right? Or Apple ate BlackBerry's lunch yet? Yeah. And even um, before
2: that, there was Palm and Handspring. Yeah. I mean, the whole story of like the handheld Ooh, Motorola device, Motorola. Yeah. yeah, it's amazing. So you've
1: seen a lot of that Nokia. Who's that anymore? I mean, the Nokia. People are like, what? I don't even know what Nokia is. But that's you know, we all we all, we had, all a Nokia had the candy some point, bar right? phone. <laughs> we
0: all had a, a Nokia <laughs> phone. Um,
1: so I mean, well, tech, that's the nature of technology, right?
0: It's kind of the nature of the world. I mean, sure. the the buggy whip, for example. I right. mean, we are always moving forward.
1: I, you know, I, I think it's amazing to see what e-commerce has done in such a short time, and I think that Amazon is the company that has led that movement. It's not to say that Amazon is the only company benefiting from it, but certainly amazon um, has has really helped sort of spearhead the way. and And it just goes to show you how really smart Jeff Bezos was to make those investments so early on. I think a lot of people really questioned. I'm not gonna buy something on the computer. I'm not gonna put my credit card on the computer and take mm-hmm. no way. That's just my security and everything. Gradually, you know, consumer behavior shifts and now all of a sudden they've recognized the fact that we, consumers, we care about convenience, we care about loyalty, we care about free shipping. And those, those, that is data. I mean, there's study after study shows. I mean, people care about free shipping more than their children in a lot of cases. And, and so you look at something like Amazon, and Bezos has built a model around that, and it's really worked out uh, pretty well.
0: There must be times in the history of the world where a company is going is is losing market share. They're sure. losing to to some flashy new technology coming in, but then they did successfully pivot. Do you? That has to have happened at least once in well, the history of we've the world. Men-
2: we've mentioned one, although currently it's not doing so. Nokia was originally, anyone, a lumber company in what in Finland? Yeah, no, the company is almost a hundred years old.
1: Wow. Yeah.
2: So it just came up with different ways to do things, but
1: well, I mean McDonald's all-day breakfast. I mean that's a pivot, yeah. right? <laughs> I mean, everybody was, was leaving McDonald's and going to Chipotle. Out—that's
0: a really brave move. Yeah, yeah, to have the fortitude to to put that out in the boardroom table is very exciting.
1: I will use Walmart here as an example of a company that I think a lot of people early on were counting out.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And,
1: and when you talk about market share, if you, you look at just the rate of sales and in just retail growth, you look at the pace of sales for Amazon versus the pace of sales for Walmart. Clearly, Walmart was getting killed. But I think they made some moves, uh, partly in acquisition, buying some internet properties. Partly on trying to sort of mimic what Amazon's been doing, Uh, they have a tremendous physical infrastructure, and if they can sort of build out the logistics expertise, uh, they can certainly participate in that e-commerce environment. And they are, and so I think that's a company that uh, they were a little bit slow to adopt, but or to adapt, but they uh, they definitely have, and, and you know they're still around because of it.
0: But it sounds like the examples are few and far between.
1: They, are, yeah, they are the exceptions and not yeah. the rule. I mean, they are definitely the exceptions and not the rule. I think, uh, you know, look at Facebook and MySpace, right? I mean, why did Facebook yeah. displace MySpace? I, I really don't know. I don't actually. know either. <laughs> but, you know, what we're seeing now also is sort of the behavior of kids out there. They're not really interested in having a Facebook page, right? I mean, now, granted, they are setting up an Instagram page, but that just goes to show you the. Shrewd acquisition skills that Mark Zuckerberg has in buying Instagram when he did. So I think he recognized even early on that the best strategy in this space is to own as many of those social apps as possible. That's why he tried to buy Snap, tried to buy Twitter, um, and probably they would have better lives if they had gone ahead and just uh, accepted the deals. But here we are.
0: All right. Our fourth breakup line is you're just not performing when I need you to.
2: And here we're talking about bidding adieu to bad funds, and I'll take this one. I'm talking about mutual funds, of course, and generally speaking, if you have a fund that has underperformed a relevant index fund over the last five years, you should probably get rid of it. So, if you own, for example, a large cap value fund and it has not beaten a large cap value index fund, there's no reason to continue holding on to that. And one of the biggest examples, and this is one that many Fools experienced because this is a fund that was in our 401 k for many years, was a fund called the Fair Home Fund run by Burke, Bruce Berkowitz. So in 2010, Morningstar named him uh, Manager of the Decade. So from 2000 to the end of 2009, I want to take a guess at what kind of performance you saw from the average large cap fund.
1: What was the day again? It,
2: 2000 to 2009, basically the first decade of this century, the average large cap blend fund.
1: I'd got to believe it so was. Must have been pretty good, right? Yeah, you know, I mean, on an annualized basis. Yep. Now, uh, this
2: included the dot com crash and the
1: Great Recession. Uh, yeah, that's right. The Great Recession was in there, too. So,
0: 2000 to 2010, the average annualized returns of a large cap mutual fund. I'll
2: just tell you. Zero point zero one percent. Wait,
1: what? Yeah, yes. because you had the dot com crash and the Great Recession in there, right?
2: And 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 by the end of two thousand nine, we were just recovering from that. So basically, those oh. funds made no money. Fair Home averaged thirteen point two percent a year. Wow. Okay, did fabulously. So Bruce Berkowitz, doing well performing, but also just a smart, articulate guy. Someone you could look at and see, like he's kind of like a young Warren Buffett, very wise type of guy you would want managing your money. Like I said, we had it in the Motley Fool 401k. I had some of this fund. Then in 2011, the market made only 2%. He lost 32%. Whoa! Over the last decade, his fund has been in the bottom 2% of funds over the last five years. The bottom One percent of funds.
0: What was his? What's his strategy? Do we know? Well,
2: he became overly concentrated Uh in certain stocks. Some of those did well. Some of them didn't. So, for example, one that hasn't done well: Sears, Um, Fannie Mae. Um, So, and the problem is, he also was concentrated in AIG, which did well for a while, depending on on when you look at it. But because when a fund starts doing poorly, everyone wants their money. And it forces the manager to have to sell stocks. And because he had all these preferreds in Fannie Mae that were illiquid, and because he owned so much of Sears, he couldn't sell those without impacting the price of those. So he had to sell all the other things. He was also highly concentrated in a real estate company called St. Joe's out in Florida. So basically, that's what happened. So it's a classic example of how past performance just isn't a reliable indicator. A future performance when it comes to a mutual fund and you have to stay on top of it and if they're not keeping up over a five-year period it's time to say goodbye
1: yeah the other thing about the past and I really like I can't emphasize it enough think about how different things are now than they were in the past like 10 20 years ago I mean like technology has just changed everything and so I mean you can't look back 20 years ago and sort of even compare it's just it's two apples to oranges it's just it, it's not fair you know I mean you have to really kind of Hit the reset button and just consider how do I feel like things are going to shake out now in this technology-driven world because it just wasn't that way just 20 years ago. I mean, I graduated from college and I mean, email was just becoming a novel concept. They didn't have internet. A little bit of a different story now. Yeah.
0: All right, our final breakup line is, "I don't like your mother."
2: (laughs) And here we're talking about a story when the company that you own becomes acquired and you're not necessarily. Comfortable with the person, the company that is doing the acquiring.
1: Yeah. Well, I think a very polarizing investment, not really here, but I think just in the investing world, is Amazon. I think a lot of people out there maybe don't think that what Jeff Bezos is doing is sustainable. He spends too much money. Amazon doesn't make any money. It's just the razor margin, razor thin margins. It's just, it's not a profitable business. And then lo and behold, Amazon acquires Whole Foods. And so maybe. People who are investing in Whole Foods because they felt like they were investing in a company that was more in line with their values and their ethics and sort of the way they would like to see uh, food uh, go, being a part of Amazon now, perhaps they don't feel as comfortable being a part of, of a company like that. And that's everybody's sort of line they have to draw on their own. It's not to say you're right or wrong, but if your company is acquired by another company, one of two things is going to happen. That acquisition is either just going to be a cash acquisition, and you don't have to worry about this, or that acquisition is going to result in getting shares of the acquirer. And if you do get shares of the acquirer, uh, then uh, you you have to consider whether or not you want to hang on to them. Now, I believe Amazon just acquired Whole Foods for. Cash, right? So I don't believe mm-hmm. there was any yeah. sort of position like that, but it's just an example in in that you have to be able to look at the acquiring company and say, "Am I on board with what they're doing? Is this something I would invest in today?" Acquisition notwithstanding, and I think for everybody, they kind of have to make make that own decision for themselves.
0: What's your bottom line advice here? If someone is thinking, "Oh, I need to sell some stocks," or "I need maybe I should sell this stock," like. What's so, your bottom
1: line advice? So I, I I mean it all be it all becomes a question of why you feel like you need to sell. And and I mean there are a lot of different reasons to do it. I think that once you identify the reason why you may need to do it, what I like to do is I like to enforce a twenty four hour Sort of moratorium. I can't do anything for twenty four hours. So that I, I what I want to do ultimately is remove all emotion from this. I want to make sure I'm making a decision based on just sound reasoning and in you know good thinking. So whatever you do, don't be hasty. If you feel like you come up, you know, come to a decision, give yourself twenty four hours to kind of pull back, think about it again, sort of deliberate it. Make sure you feel like you're making a smart decision that's not based on emotions. Because I think it's very easy. Again, with how quickly information travels and the way that we can trade online now, people make emotional decisions all the time, and very rarely are they actually good ones. I think investing is is uh, something where you are better served when you remove the emotions from the equation. It's not easy to do, but you can do it.
0: Jason, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: It's always a joy to have you.
1: It's always a pleasure to be here. <laughs>
0: Support for Motley Fool Answers comes from our identity protection friends at My ID Care. One in five American adults were victims of identity theft in 2016, and the problem only seems to be getting worse. My ID Care covers all nine types of identity theft by proactively monitoring, instantly alerting you of any suspicious activity, and working closely with you to restore your identity should fraud occur. Their best in class identity protection covers all types of identity theft, from medical ID theft to child identity theft. They have you covered. Enroll today to get credit and dark web monitoring and $1 million insurance. I should also mention they have a 100% success rate restoring identities. Join the more than 25 million Americans who depend on My ID Care for protection. Get 15% off by visiting myidcare.com. fool today. Speaking of breakups, Elizabeth Taylor loved getting married. Eight times, in fact. She also loved getting divorced. She was even married to the same man and divorced the same man twice. The drama that surrounded her life outshadowed the fact that she was actually pretty savvy with money. Was she? Do you want to learn all about it? I would
2: love to. Because
0: today, I'm going to present you with three money lessons from Elizabeth Taylor. Oh, great. All right. so, lesson number one, make the most of your brand. So, when she died in 2011 at the age of 79, she was believed to be worth roughly 600 million dollars. Holy cow! Where do you assume her money came from, bro? Uh, I don't. I
2: don't know. I'm actually listening to this new podcast that's about the history of early Hollywood, and mm-hmm. I'm listening to a series about Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, and it sounded to me like. Actors and actresses back then didn't have any rights. I would assume like royalties of some kind, but I don't know if they had any rights back then.
0: No, you're right. So, back in the early days, she would refer to herself as MGM Chattel because until 1961, she was under a studio contract, which made, means that she made not very much money or had much control over her life. And. While she was the first woman to make 1 million dollars for her title role in Cleopatra, her real money came from her entrepreneurialism. Oh. She recognized that funny thing. She wasn't getting a lot of roles in her late 40s and 50s and she needed another source of income. So, according to Bloomberg, Elizabeth Taylor was the first celebrity to really capitalize on her brand. It started with her perfume in 1991. Do you remember what it was called?
2: I don't. Uh, Udo Michael Jackson?
0: White Diamonds.
2: Oh, really?
0: <laughs> yeah, It was followed up by a costume jewelry uh, company and other branding plays. So, how successful was she? Well, at least in the case of White Diamonds. <laughs> It had raked in $77 million in sales the year before she died. Holy
2: cow. I vaguely remember commercials about this, but I don't, yeah. yeah.
0: So even now, six years after her death, her estate is still raking in $8 million a year from all of the branding. A little bit from the residuals, but yeah.
2: Wow. That's impressive.
0: All right. Next lesson. Lesson number two always be hustling. Elizabeth Taylor's final wedding was to Larry Fortensky in 1991. I'm sure you remember this.
2: Was he like the butler or something like that?
0: No, well, he was 20 years her junior and he was a construction worker that she met at the Betty Ford Clinic and the tabloids went bananas as they had her whole life. The wedding was at Michael Jackson's Neverland Ranch. Because they were very good friends, yep. And it cost between one point five and two million dollars. Wow! Apparently, Michael Jackson actually footed the bill. Uh, and here's a side note, little mini lesson from Elizabeth Taylor. She has a history of receiving very nice gifts from friends, <laughs> including a sixty nine carat Cartier diamond ring. It was given to her by Richard Burton, uh, and he paid one point five million for it in nineteen sixty nine. Wow! So yeah. Let's head back to the wedding. Here we are on the wedding day. It's a veritable who's who of celebrities, including Liza Minnelli, Eddie Murphy, Nancy Reagan, Macaulay Culkin. Of course. It was the early 90s. This is who you're going to get. A dozen helicopters flew overhead to get photos, and one determined paparazzo actually parachuted into the ceremony to get pictures.
2: To get arrested? Shot down? I hope so. I hope
0: so. Uh, so. What does Elizabeth Taylor do? She capitalizes on all this excitement and she sells her wedding photos to People Magazine for $1 million and then uses the money to start an AIDS charity.
2: Oh, that's cool.
0: I know! Uh. That's why I'm telling you about it. All right, last lesson. And this one's near and dear to your heart. As we mentioned before, Elizabeth Taylor was reportedly worth upwards of $600 million when she died, which included. $150 a hundred and fifty million in jewelry. Wow. See, aforementioned one for one point five million dollar ring that she got in the '60s. Um, she also had real estate that was worth at least one hundred six one hundred thirty million. Sorry, and we don't know a lot about what she passed on to her heirs because it was in a revocable living trust.
2: Ah, okay. Now,
0: Larry Fretensky, her last husband, admitted that she left him roughly about eight hundred thousand. So you might assume that a nasty fight. Erupted, right? Because she's like super wealthy and tons of kids and tons of grandkids. Nope, not so. The estate was settled peacefully and only Larry had the loose lips. The rumor is that most of the money went to her children, grandchildren, and charities, but they all lived happily ever after honoring her legacy.
2: Right. So, as we talked about in the previous episode about estate planning horror stories, anything you pass on via a will eventually becomes public because a will is a public document. If you do it via trust, you can maintain a lot more privacy.
0: There you go. Oh, I also have a bonus lesson. Do you want to hear my bonus lesson? That would be grand. Okay. So, Elizabeth Taylor's life was always under scrutiny and in the public eye. If you think Jolie Pitt Aniston was a huge like mess, remember like when Angelina Jolie and Brad Pitt like cheated and yeah, yeah. Huge deal, right? It has nothing on when Eddie Fisher left Debbie Reynolds for Elizabeth Taylor. <laughs> Carrie
2: Fisher's parents. Yes, exactly. that was that was. I mean, you tell the story about that. That was well, scandalous. A bit.
0: Yeah. So basically, uh, Debbie Reynolds and Eddie Fisher they were best friends with Elizabeth Taylor and Mike Todd. Mike Todd was Eddie Fisher's best friend. They all hung out together. They did everything together. So Mike Todd dies uh, in a plane crash. It was something sudden, and uh, as Carrie Fisher puts it, her father rushed to Elizabeth's side, gradually moving to her front. <laughs> In a very short amount of time, Eddie leaves Debbie Reynolds and him and Elizabeth Taylor get married. So, Elizabeth Taylor was always in the tabloids for her marriages, her divorces, having the audacity to get old and gain a little weight. So, in an interview I once saw, she was asked by the reporter if all the criticism in the press bothers her. And she replied, They didn't get me in my home. Have you ever heard that phrase before? No, I'd never heard that phrase before either. Um, But basically, it was her saying, like, they didn't know they don't they don't know what really bothers me. They like their words don't hurt me because they don't know me well enough. And I just loved how she was like taking back the power that these. I mean, in her, the Pope once condemned her and Richard Burton's wedding. What does she say? Well, this wasn't indirect. This wasn't indirect response to the Pope, but the idea that. Didn't get me in my home. And she's just going (laughs) to keep on moving forward um, and being awesome, Elizabeth Taylor, marry whoever she wants. Anyway, so that is my extra bonus lesson. It's not about money, but it's the idea of uh, don't let them get you in your home. That's Uh great. I've never, had you ever heard that before? You had? Yeah. It's it's vaguely familiar. Yeah. Yeah. I'd never heard it before. Anyway, I love it. Okay. That's the show. It's edited, revoked. By Rick Engdahl. <laughs> Our email is answers at fool.com. For Robert Brokamp, I'm Allison Southwick. Stay foolish, everybody.